Welcome to this episode of the VO2 Lounge. Today I will be talking about ice baths as they appear to be quite popular at the moment and I have a previous episode on uh, sauna, hot exposure and hot and cold exposure as a combination of the two Um, but most of that seemed to be sauna centric and then the cold exposure was a short one two minute exposure to almost reset the body for a further round of hot exposure in the sauna Um, so this episode is aimed to be more cold exposure centric in isolation of any heat therapies um, that may be done along with them Uh, and to add to that most of the research in this episode will be on cold water immersion uh, as it's the most economical and widely studied form of cold therapy However, there are other methods such as cryotherapy that use liquid nitrogen to cool you down uh, in a chamber rather than in a bathtub or whatever. And this is obviously far more expensive and requires much greater setup and resources than a bath with ice in it. Um, With cold water exposure, the main focus will be head out immersion. Uh, Why this over cold showers? Well, just think how hard it'd be to control an experiment using a shower. Uh, you'd have to make some kind of jig, first of all, to keep the participant um, completely still, because depending how much they move, where the water's coming into contact with them, whether their head's being exposed, whether their head is not being exposed, controlling the temperature of that water, controlling the amount that their body's exposed to, maybe if depending on the size of, say, the shower head and their body type and composition and the effectively surface area exposed to that water. It's just an incredibly hard way to control a study. Whereas a bathtub, simple, chuck them in, make sure their head's out, tell them to just stay still as possible, and there you go. Um, A study titled the comparison of cryotherapy modality applications over the um, interior thigh across rugby union positions a crossover randomized controlled trial summarized their findings as follows and this is going to kind of give reason for why cryotherapy also will not really feature in this episode because again the research isn't as broad and conclusive and in abundance as for head out cold water immersion. Um, So they stated that variability in approaches of cryotherapy application by sports physical therapists demonstrates a lack of consensus due to a limited data to due to limited data to substate cryotherapy guidelines. The greatest implication of the current study supports recommendations to further the research in cryotherapy applications to meet therapeutic goals through adaption of protocols to each athlete. Uh, the significant variability um, in TSK between cooling in the two positional groups affirms the importance of the individualization of local cooling protocols when considering physical traits and characteristics within a rugby union population. Specifically, obviously the title uh, has already mentioned this, but this was rugby union rugby union if you don't know what it is it's just a form of rugby is probably the one you may you've got rugby league rugby union rugby union it's the 15 aside version uh, but that's 
somewhat not important for the study, but future research may consider extending observations beyond the dichotomy of forwards and backs and other sports in which variability uh, in physical characteristics vary across a squad. So essentially they're saying, depending on your position, the stresses you're exposed to, I guess your body type and other factors that may differ between positions on a sports team, the uh, modality used for cryotherapy may differ and simply there needs to be more um, research done. Um, so that is why it won't be covered. So we're going to focus on head out cold water immersion aka an ice bath. So with that, why this episode? So I'm going to talk straight from a study on the physical uh, physiological society. Uh, as to me, it covers exactly why I'm doing this episode and the current state of research on ice baths. So over the past decade, uh, significant research has focused on optimizing the recovery of elite athletes for obvious reasons. Uh, the premises behind such a theory is that uh, suboptimal recovery often leads to fatigue, reduce the quality of subsequent training sessions and or competitive performances whilst potentially hindering adaptive processes that occur from training. Uh, there is now a plethora of research focusing on the impact of one such recovery strategy, cold water immersion, or CWI, and the benefits it may provide post-exercise. So on the market now, there are a plethora of cold exposure solutions that don't involve buying ice or making some kind of DIY ice bath with a chest freezer. To name a few, you have uh, NeuroCover, Lumi Chill Tubs, Optiotherapy, and uh, list kind of just goes on. There's various ones popping up. These do vary in price and convenience, but the question is, do you really need to get one of these to get the most out of your training? So in reality, do you need cold water exposure or is it a bit of a you know novelty? So what are the effects? of ice baths, specifically on exercise performance slash recovery. Now a paper titled Post-Exercise Impact of Ice Cold Water Bath on the Oxidant-Antioxidant Baseline in Healthy Men aimed to do exactly that. So the aim of the study was to determine the effect of a five-minute head-out ice cold water bath on the oxidant and antioxidant balance in response to exercise. Uh, the crossover study included subjects, 24 of which of them, and they were aged between 28 and um, plus or minus 7 years, uh, who performed two individual stationary cycling bouts for 30 minutes and recovered for 10 minutes at room temperature. In session 1, they were at 20 degrees C, which was just the ambient room temperature, or in the uh, cold water protocol, they were at a three degree C ice bath for five minutes of immersion in session two. This, I will add, is what makes it a crossover study. The fact that all participants took part in both recovery modalities, helping to eliminate as much individual response variations as possible. It could be quite easy to just get a population of people, do a split down the middle or a random split effectively having say 10 in each group you may just happen to have 10 people who are poor responders to the cold water immersion throwing off your results so by having the population do both you can kind of help to eliminate outliers and any other kind of responses uh, as a side note i'm going to stick to acronyms for most of this to save butchering pronunciations 
so the concentration of uh, T bars, a product of the chain of events of oxidative degradation of lipids, um, and uh, the erith uh, sorry, and SOD, which is the product of oxygen metabolism, catalase, which is CAT. Uh, is a common enzyme found in nearly all living organisms exposed to oxygen, which catalyzes the decomposition of hydrogen peroxide to water and oxygen, and GPX, whose main biological role is to protect the organism from oxidative damage, were measured three times during each of the two study sessions before the exercise, which was the baseline, and then 20 minutes and 40 minutes after the appropriate recovery session. So you've obviously got a baseline for what their levels were. You then obviously do the bout of exercise, then recover. Then they do that for both the two methods of recovery. Their conclusions to the study, they stated that ice cold water bath elevated the level of lipid uh, peroxidation after 30 minutes of aerobic exercise on an ergometer. So just on like a indoor trainer style setup. Um, in healthy men. However, the rationale for the uh, post-exercise use of a five-minute head-out ice-cold water bath, so three degrees C again, for improving performance is still unknown, since in the study only at one-time procedure was using, well, sorry, a, only a one-time procedure was used, and the effects during long-term training bouts accompanied by um, head-out cold water baths was not determined. Uh, moreover, there was no change in the antioxidant enzyme activities after the exercise bout accompanied by the recovery interventions compared to the baseline, as well as between the two types of post-exercise recovery interventions. The temperature of the ice-cold water might also be too low. Furthermore, in the literature, the long-term association between uh, cold water baths with intense exercise is described as inconsistently. Um, that further studies are effectively required. So where does this leave us? Inconclusive? Yes. It sounds like some of the biomarkers indicated of the uh, indicate of post-exercise muscle uh, trauma are present, but are these necessary an evil, uh, or are they required to improve adaptions to exercise? Is this something maybe only beneficial when you are looking not to adapt to training, but simply to survive, say in a cycling environment, you may have a grand tour or a multi-day event in any kind of form of sport or a big season in a team sport where maybe physical adaptions have already been gained and at this point it's just about retaining them and getting through the season or the race or whatever period, extended period of intense exercise that you're going through now as this study points out this is a very it's a one-off it's not focusing on a long-term outlook of what may happen with physical performance so say multi-day events to get a better idea of this there is an article in Temperature, uh, Muscle Physiology and Beyond, which is titled Warming to Ice Baths, Don't Go Cool on Cold Water Immersion Just Yet. Now, it goes into some of the more uh, specifics around uh, cold cold therapy in general and sports performance. So it starts with a study from Cheng et al., um, which 
uh, focus on the arm cycling performance was shown to be impaired and conversely enhanced when triceps were either cooled to 15 degrees C or heated to 38 respectively. Uh, in their single fiber experiments, it was shown that cooling to 16 degrees C or 26 degrees C resulted in decreased submaximal force and fatigue resistance despite standardizing the media uh, temperature to 31 degrees C when the contraction was initiated. Um, this is kind of to be expected now, I think, accepted that warming up is important. So if you're going to um, cool the muscle, then it, it does obviously outline that they did the contraction at um, day one degree C, but they attributed this, even though warming up the muscle, that this phenomenon was attributed to the slower rate of glycogen resynthesis following cooling which was otherwise shown to be accelerated following heat treatment is effectively just bringing glycogen back into the muscle was shown to be impaired by this cooling rapid cooling of the muscle and actually achieving a approximately 15 degrees c muscle temp um this study was over a very short recovery interval, similar to that of a powerlifting meet, where maybe you have 10 to 20 minutes of recovery between lifts. However, it is unclear if cold water immersion might exacerbate the development of muscle fatigue when competing over consecutive days or weeks based on muscle glycogen measurements determined just 30 minutes into recovery. Uh, we have they stated that they have previously demonstrated no uh, detrimental effects of post-exercise cold water immersion which was 10 minutes at 8 degrees C on muscle glycogen resynthesis in human participants through a 4 hour recovery period whilst regular cold water immersion at 15 minutes at 15 degrees C undertaken during a 3 weeks of intensified training tended to improve training performance amongst national level cyclists so that right there is a grand tour if you did obviously people listen to this aren't riding grand tour but for reference, effectively doing 15 minutes at 15 degrees C, given that the recovery window is quite long, longer than four hours, there is time for the, even if the glycogen uh, resynthesis is being hindered during that period in the bath, there's long enough for it to happen. Plus, as it goes on to mention, um, the Chengatal study was doing quite a radical uh, intervention in the sense that they were physically cooling that muscle to the 15 degrees C. If you're in a cold water tank for 15 minutes at 15 degrees C, you will not achieve a uh, muscle temperature of 15 degrees C. Um, so it appears that it's beneficial. Um, so that's where it was kind of left at. They also stated that uh, they agree that cold water immersion doesn't seem to be the ideal recovery intervention following resistance training exercise. So going to the gym, lifting weights, coming out of that or being still at the gym and getting into a cold water bath doesn't seem to be beneficial. However, recent work from uh, uh, Tavers, Tavies et al. support the notion that appropriate programming of cold water immersion sessions may negate any adverse effects on strength adaptions to resistance training. The example that was given was of elite rugby players 
A tendency for improved jump performance was evident when regular cold water immersion, in this case 10 minutes at 10 degrees C, was undertaken at the end of each training day, whilst resistance training sessions were undertaken in the morning during a three-week pre-season training period, giving enough uh, of a gap for adaptions of the strength training to take hold, whilst also allowing for improved recovery at the end of the day. Um, possible links to this, seeing as it is the end of the day, I didn't quite, I didn't manage to get the exact time of day that this cold water immersion was taking place. But from a previous episode that I had on sleep, there is benefits of, first of all, your body needs to cool, well, will cool as you go into sleep. And that's why on hot days, when your room is warm, it can be quite hard to get to sleep because it effectively there's not that trigger. Um, so it could be possible that by slipping these cold water immersion sessions late in the day, even though there'll be an adrenaline response, this cooling period could allow for um, improved uh, sleep, possibly. So it may be other, it, multi, it may be multifactorial as to how this is um, taking hold. In conclusion, it should be emphasised that the effects of cooling on exercise performance and adaptions are distinct and influenced by many factors including the duration, timing, um, magnitude, the individual responses and the nature of the activity that is taking place. Uh, while uh, mechanistic studies such as the Chengatal, this is them referring back to Chengatal, are crucial to help understanding the intramuscular factors influencing muscle uh, function following uh, cooling and heating, yeah, the extrapolation and application of such data to sports science testing needs to be within appropriate contents and understanding. Cold water immersion involving 10 to 15 minutes of immersion at 10 to 15 degrees C has been shown to improve acute and subsequent day recovery in exercise performance and well-being and may be useful recovery tool during periods of intensified training or competition. So either a big training block, in the case of rugby, a pre-season block, um, or cycling, just you're, you're doing a very intense build phase. And then the extended competition, a World Cup in sports would in things like football and rugby would be a good example where you've got lots of back-to-back games and need to perform well in each of them um, whereas I suppose a regular season you may have at least in rugby you may have a week between uh, games um, such cold water immersion protocols do not seem to impair muscle glycogen resynthesis over a four-hour post-exercise period uh, while research by Cheng has indicated important physiological responses to extreme cooling, it should not be suggested that post-exercise cold water immersion will confer similar effects. Um, effectively, as long as you're do, not doing something too radical, it appears that there are benefits to be had. But trying to really radically cool the muscle seems to be problematic. Uh, apart from some caveats, there's evidence supporting the use of cold water immersion to enhance physical recovery. And in their humble opinion, uh, it's time to cool down the unnecessary scaremongering against the use of the recovery modality. Um, I personally was on the fence myself. Uh, it looks like from their work, it appears that there isn't necessarily this eradication of adaptions um, from... Uh, 
specific endurance performance, but there, it does seem to still be time specific. So if you're purely endurance sport focused, then post exercise will be fine. If you're doing some kind of weight training, then it's important to kind of space out where you're going to have this cold water immersion. Now that does it for the performance implications. Um, so now for some of the more health implications. A big one people often refer to is the development of brown fat. So a in more in-depth uh, view on cold water exposure and its benefits can be found on a previous episode around um, sauna and cold, so hot and cold water, hot and cold therapy essentially, which includes sauna use and cold water exposure or some kind of cooling agent in unison now the cold water exposure or cold therapy proportionally takes up a much smaller um, amount of the time dedicated for example you may do 20 minutes in a sauna followed by two water two minutes of cold water exposure back to 20 minutes back to two back to a final 20. now specific to solely cold exposure now whether that's cryotherapy cold water shower whatever it is a thought is the development of brown fat brown adipose tissue or brown fat is a localized only in special small deposits around the body mostly in the neck area and it's activated by cold exposure of any description uh, in contrast to white fat um, basically generally subcutaneous fats which stores fat brown fat mainly burns energy which is then released as heat and brown fat is is activated by the cold and a colder environment has been shown to relate to a higher cold fat activation and lower overall body weight in general now whether this is linked to other factors around that environment kind of unknown but this is the correlation uh, although skeletal muscles are also very important contributors, brown adipose tissue plays a role in energy expenditure in response to acute cold exposure. Uh, skeletal muscle is used in shivering to heat us up when we get cold, which is an incredibly efficient mechanism that can, be in, that can increase heat production close to five times your baseline heat expenditure. Uh, now, brown adipose tissue oxidative capacity and activity increases in response to repeated cold exposure, leading to changes in lipid metabolism. These effects on metabolism may contribute to human health, although glucose metabolism also plays a role, as that has been shown to be impaired in brown adipose tissue of type 2 diabetic patients. So it's a bit of a give and take there. Uh, therefore, as activation of brown fat may prevent body adiposity and related metabolic and cardiovascular disorders, repeated cold exposure may also be beneficial to health for that reason. However, with this in mind, it is important to note that as actual brown fat adipose are only a few grams, browning of white fat to be a substantial extent would be needed to show physiological relevant effects on whole body metabolism. Um, as an investigation in humans has shown that purely brown fat thermogenesis can only account for energy consumption of less than 20 calories a day. 
This amount of energy consumption can be obtained by doing moderate intensity physical activity such as brisk walking or moderate intensity running for only two minutes. This emphasis that the import this sorry this emphasizes the importance and potential of physical activity in the prevention and treatment of excess excessive body adiposity and related cardiometabolic disorders. Although activation of brown fat by cold could certainly be applied as an individual therapy, in addition the benefit of exercise are better documented. Uh, brown fat is of course not the only benefit put forward. A review titled Health and Effects of Voluntary Exposure to Cold Water, a continuing subject of debate, outlines the following. So improved uh, improvement in cardiovascular disease risk factor markers on the whole, uh, lower cold shock response. This is kind of a suppose more specific to someone maybe trying to do an, an outdoor swim um, where they know they're going to be exposed to cold water. Um, that cold shock response is undesirable and will make you less efficient. Say you've got, even if it's if it's an outdoor swim or like a triathlon where you know there'll be cold water, even with the wetsuit, cold water exposure will improve uh, that shock response. Skin fold thickness was found to increase in men and decrease in women. The reasons to weren't clear. Um, improved... Uh, CIVD response, shift in fat metabolism, increased poten- uh, potentiation of non-shivering heat production, so again linking to that brown fat, reduced thermoregulatory threshold for cold thermogenesis, habituation of thermal sensation and comfort, and habituation in respiratory response. So a lot of it was climatization, and then there was this kind of subset of things like reduced cardiovascular risk markers. Now, many of the benefits of cold water exposure are similar to that of a regular exercise, but with a decreased magnitude such as cardiovascular health benefits. But some of the less hard to pin down are the benefits such as improved mental state and um, fortitude. The idea being that the exposure to physical stress and the improvement um, in cognitive methods to dealing with that result in um, to help deal with regular day-to-day stresses, similar to that of exercise in, in reality. People also often refer to feeling amazing after cold water immersion. This has been linked to the release of dopamine in the body as a chemical we are all most likely familiar with but it simply makes you just makes people feel good once it's registered by the brain. Um, more of this really is uh, in the hot and cold exposure episode. Now I realize at this point I haven't exactly explicitly mentioned possible co-old exposure modalities that can be used, um, just what was used in the studies. But essentially, if you go through that, you'll be able to find them, but to list them very quickly, if using cold water immersion, um, then thanks to water's vastly superior ability to transfer heat uh, in comparison to the air, submersion in water between 10 to 15 degrees for 10 to 15 minutes respectively has been shown to be enough to elicit the benefits described in the above studies. Um, depending on the temperature outside and therefore the temperature of your tap water, this may mean that no ice is needed to achieve this temperature or very little. Uh, alternatively, if you're happy to achieve a cooler temperature via introducing ice or by uh, some kind of cooling device, 
Um, a shorter duration can be used, for example, five minutes at three degrees C, which is needlessly to say very cold. <laughs> Um, as for cold showers, as I've mentioned before, there's limited research, if none really at all are worth noting in this episode, purely for the fact that if you're trying to control an experiment using something that is incredibly hard to control, aka an individual showering, um, they're just simply not used um, for that reason. Doesn't mean they don't work. You can put the shower on cold and you can use it maybe as a one or two ways. It can be a gateway into using colder therapies. Um, it can be a gateway into using it not for performance benefits. I'd suggest that if you're looking for the specifically the performance benefits to enhance the cooling of the worked muscles, which is very hard to do in a shower, um, actual cold water immersion is far more desirable if you are seeking to improve your response to the cold for an event or you're looking to simply elicit the psychological benefits of said exposure then cold water exposure uh, through a shower can do the job you can have your warm shower and then finish off with the cold to get that sort of adrenaline rush and there you have it. Now I think it should be needless to say that cold water safety should always be at the forefront of someone's mind. Don't use cold lakes and things like that. Like if the water is frozen over and you think it's a cheap way of getting an ice bath, don't do it, especially on your own. Using facilities at home or at actual facilities, far safer environment, easier to warm yourself back up. Um, if you're doing things for 10 to 15 minutes in a 10 to 15 degree water, then you're most likely going to be able to do it. If you have really poor circulation to um, your toes or hands, then you can wear neoprene gloves of some description to keep those warm. If those are the kind of the extremities that are struggling the most, but the rest of the body's fine. I have found this especially with cold, cold water, things like three degrees. Simply the circulation to my feet isn't great. So wearing some kind of little booty or whatever can help deal with those. If anything feels numb, get out um, and try again. May mean that you just need some level of acclimatization to that uh, cold water. And over time, you'll be able to deal with it. And the circulation to those areas and the response in general uh, can be improved. Now, thank you for listening to today's episode. All resources used can be found linked to in the episode description below. If you want more content like this, there are plenty of previous episodes to check out. But before you do, why not follow the podcast and leave it a rating wherever you get your podcast from? Or even better, share it with a friend. For any comments, feedback, or if you would like to suggest a topic for future episodes, I can be contacted at the vo2lounge at gmail.com. With that, I'll see you in the next episode.